0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. The scripture readings that we will look at together today are based on year A, proper 25. That would put it at the end of summer, really technically I guess we would say fall, usually right around the end of October. Now, proper 25, these readings you don't get each and every year, because as you get to that point, the end of October, we often in the Lutheran Church will celebrate Reformation Sunday, and the following Sunday, then the first one in November, will end up being a celebration of All Saints Day. Propers 25, 26, and 27, those three weekend readings, get overwritten by Reformation Sunday and All Saints Day readings, some years 25 and 26 are the ones consumed and some years it's 26 and 27 so we do see these proper 25 readings some years but not always so year a proper 25 is going to give us from the Old Testament Leviticus chapter 19 verses 1 through 2 as well as verses 15 through 18 the epistle from 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 That's verses 1 through 13. And then the gospel text, Matthew 22, verses 33 to 46. We begin with the Leviticus reading. I know I've said this in the podcast in past episodes, but we don't see a lot of Leviticus, really hardly any Leviticus, in the three-year lectionary reading system. It shows up in year A, the seventh Sunday after Epiphany, and in year C, on proper 10, so earlier in the summer. And those particular readings that we see are all the same, pretty much. So in in year C, that proper 10 reading is going to be from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 18, although your pastor can add on chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, and then in the seventh Sunday after Epiphany reading, it's verses one through two of chapter nineteen, which we have today, as well as verses nine through eighteen. So primarily all of our reading out of the book of Leviticus coming from this same section. The rest of the book is entirely absent from the lectionary. That's not not noteworthy, right? This is something that that we should be able to see and and recognize, and as Christians, know that the rest of Leviticus is also God's word. And the primary way Leviticus will point you to Jesus Christ is actually in those, well, it's the whole book, but as you go through those early chapters, and you read about all the sacrificial system and what Israel had to do, and you, you recognize that you don't have to do it anymore sin offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, wave offerings, all the different ways that you made sacrifice, all of this is now done in Christ for us, for you. He is the one and for all sacrifice, which will be a theme of the New Testament letter of Hebrews. So Leviticus, in that way, actually becomes a very beautiful book. Although, again, not normally held that way by Christians today. So our text, let's start with verses 1 and 2. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy so in this chapter of scripture the lord is giving moses instructions to give to the people of israel primarily instructions that we'll see the summary of at the end of the text here today you shall love your neighbor as yourself laws rules for how the congregation of israel is to live with one another as a people as the people of god we can see than the connection to us today as the body of Christ, the people of God, the Christian church. So speaking to the people of Israel, God's Old Testament nation, that he brought out of Egypt and gave the promised land, you shall be holy. Holy. Set aside or perfect. Those are our two normal definitions for the word. For I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Because we have the comparison to God Himself, instead of seeing this as set apart, we might more likely see it as perfect. The instruction that we would be holy. This is picked up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. As Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he declares. Near the end, end of the first section, I I guess to break down the Sermon on the Mount quickly, verses three to twelve of Matthew five. The start of the sermon is the gospel through the beatitudes, the blessings. Jesus speaks, and then you have verses thirteen through sixteen, which are the call of the Christian. That you are the salt of the earth, city on a hill, uh, a light of the world, so forth. Verses 17 through 20 build on that a little bit, and then verses 21, really through the rest of the sermon, is Jesus unpacking the law. And it can be seen as a very impossible law to be kept, that the Lord is making it impossible. Or it can be seen as, again, the call of the Christian, that we are to live differently, set apart from the world around us. And so as the call is given in chapter 5 earlier, at verse 48, the end of the chapter, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That strikes us very strongly. You therefore must be perfect. It's the impossible law that I cannot keep. But it's worth mentioning that the word there in Greek is actually a future indicative it could be translated you will be perfect or even you shall be just as we have you shall be holy here and suddenly you're left to wrestle with the possibility that what Jesus is saying is not an impossible law but it could actually be seen as gospel the very idea That in God you are perfect, that he is making you perfect because you are his and you are seen in Christ by the Father on the day of judgment, not for your sins. So it can be both a law statement and a gospel statement and we can see then this as the same. You shall be holy Yes, the Lord does expect perfection from us. He expects us to be His people, to not live like the world around us does, but instead to live as He calls us to live, in love for one another. But at the same time, it is also gospel that the Lord calls us, that the Lord actually makes us into this. I mean, what's the gospel here for the people of God at this time? The Lord has rescued them from slavery in Egypt. The Lord has brought them out of the house of slavery. That's how the Ten Commandments actually start, is with gospel, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And then he feeds them, he cares for them, provides for them in the wilderness, which is where they are to receive this text. So it is both and. There is something beautiful about God calling us to be his people. About the Lord welcoming us into the work of his kingdom. And also the future fulfillment that we have in Jesus Christ. That he makes us holy, he makes us perfect. But at the same time, yes, this is law. The Lord does expect us to do this. The Lord expects us to keep these words. Now, again, we don't get all these words today. For our weekend readings, we're skipping straight past verses 3 through 14, all the way to verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor? You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in court. This is a reiteration of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness or testimony against your neighbor. That's literally a a commandment that deals with court. The possibility of getting your neighbor into trouble. Convicted for a crime that they did not commit. Or released from a crime they did, depending on how you're bearing false witness. So here, do no injustice in court. In other words, in court, do justly. Do what is right. Only. You shall not be partial to the poor, or defer to the great. Now, why would you do such a thing? One might show partiality to the poor, not for the poor man's reward, because the poor man has nothing to give, but because of the idea that the community around you might look at you as great. Look how generous this man is. Or that the poor man would look up to you and somehow want to serve you. Or simply out of pity for you despise him. The flip side, though, is if a man is great, don't be partial to him either because you think he'll, you know, bless you, pay you off richly. Or that you'll earn his favor somehow, which will lead to something great for you in the future. It doesn't matter if the man is poor or rich. doesn't matter. Do not show partiality. Do not do injustice. Seek what is just. Tell the truth. Bear true testimony. This is who the people of God are to be. That will get picked up on in... Matthew chapter 5 again, Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus will talk about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. We are to be such a people steeped in the truth. Always. Because Christ is truth. Verse 16. shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Also usually a connection for us to the Eighth Commandment. Leviticus 19 might help encourage us in that way. So instead of seeking to destroy the reputation of your neighbor, speaking falsely, trying to tear them down, we are taught as Christians today that we want to build, build up our neighbor. Use our tongue to edify for good, encouragement. Nor are we to stand up against the life of our neighbor. This is again in the picture of court. To stand against your neighbor is to seek to put them to death when they do not deserve it. Was there a death penalty in ancient Israel? Yes. How wrong would it be to bear false witness, to get your neighbor put to death for a crime they did not commit. And yet this is precisely what we see in the gospel account of Jesus Christ. As Israel rises up against him, slanders him, and they stand up against his life, seeking to have him put to death on the cross. And their secret trials by night. And just as our first paragraph did, our second paragraph now also ends with the phrase, I am Yahweh. The third paragraph will as well. The first one was a little different, I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. But each of these ends with this idea of Yahweh. You shall do this because he's Yahweh. Because he's God. Because he exists, which is a bit of what his name means. Yahweh is from the Hebrew, he is. God says in Exodus 3, I am who I am. He says I am, we call him he is. We do these things because we are his people and because he is our God. Verses 17 and 18, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your brother lest you incur sin because of him you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself i am yahweh so we start with hatred on this verse and again that connects very well to the sermon on the mount as jesus will have a section about loving your well, loving your neighbor but hating your enemy, which is never spoken in the Old Testament quite that way. All of those statements Jesus making are teachings that they're familiar with by the teachers of their day. Some of them are truly from the Old Testament. Some of them weren't, though. But Jesus teaches that even to call your brother a fool, to insult him, is to hate him. And we read also in a place like 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Bit of a Cain-Abel connection there. So instead of hating him, reason frankly with him. Brother and neighbor seem to be equated together here. Lest you incur sin because of him. so deal well with one another just seek to be at peace with one another so you don't sin all kinds of sin can come from this the hatred of another is sin as we just discussed from 1 John 3 the violence you might seek to do against him the covetousness the the jealousy the rage insults whatever it might be all kinds of ways we can sin but specifically our lord and This paragraph goes into the idea of vengeance and grudges. So let's look at those ideas. Vengeance is the idea of revenge, as we would put it, getting even, seeking to pay somebody back for what they have done. So your neighbor has hurt you, and you seek to go and hurt them back. As though it will somehow make you feel better and this is the way the world functions around us but here from Romans chapter 12 verse 19 beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord Leave it to the wrath of God. Never avenge yourselves. This is a struggle for the Christian today. It's like we don't believe God still acts. I have to fight back. Because if I don't, no one else will. You know the Lord sees everything. Put it in his hands. Trust in him. At Romans 19, or sorry, Romans 12, verse 19, passage is a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, where it is said, "Vengeance is mine, and recompense; for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly." In verse 36: For Yahweh will vindicate his people, and have compassion on his servants, when he sees that their power is gone. And there is none remaining bond or free. Similar to how Paul says he is made strong, perfect in weakness, because then he leans in on Christ. Thorn in the flesh text from the letters to the church in Corinth. Now, bearing a grudge, this is when you hold somebody else's sin against them. They've wronged you, so you hold a grudge. You despise them for it. You hate them for it for days, for weeks, for years at a time. This is not good. Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount again. Lord's Prayer Jesus teaches us to pray forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he says it again twice, immediately after the close of the prayer. That we would forgive and so our father in heaven forgives us that's a line that always puzzles lutheran theologians lutherans in general it makes it sound like god's forgiveness depends on our forgiveness but this is explained in the parable of the unmerciful servant in matthew chapter 18 where the king the master jesus has a servant who owes him 10,000 talents, which is like 200,000 years worth of income, doesn't have it, can't pay it back, but begs for more time, says he will. But instead, the master shows pity upon him and forgives him the whole debt. Forgives it. It's wiped out. It's gone. This is what Christ has done for us, an impossible debt that you and I could never possibly repay. It's gone. Forgiven. Taken away. A servant goes out. He finds another servant who owes him a hundred denarii. That's a hundred days' pay. Three, Roughly three months, a little over. Sin hurts. That other servant has sinned against him. He's wronged him, and it hurts. But having been forgiven an impossible amount it is expected that he will then also live in that forgiveness and he will forgive the fellow servant, but he doesn't. When the servant begs him, he ignores it. He casts him into prison. And so he's brought back before the master because the master hears of what he's done and the master also throws him into prison. And Jesus then says that the Father will do so also to us if we do not forgive our brother from our heart. We are already in the forgiveness of God, and we are called to live it. If we choose not to forgive, we are rejecting God's forgiveness. We are choosing to leave that forgiveness. I mean, view it as a path if you want to, or view it as a, I don't view it as a city. You've been placed in this holy city. You've been placed in this place of forgiveness. And daily life there is forgiveness. We just forgive. We forgive. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And to choose not to forgive is to leave the city. To walk another path. And so you are no longer in the forgiveness of Christ. It has been removed from you. Or rather, you have removed yourself from it. And this is the danger of bearing a grudge. So if there are any grudges in you this day, go ahead, pause the podcast. You can come back to this. It's not going anywhere. Repent. Ask for forgiveness from the Lord for the grudge that you have bore. Go to that fellow sinner, that fellow man, and have that conversation. Be reconciled. That is the start of Matthew 18, well earlier in the chapter I suppose, on how we are to be reconciled together. If our brother has sinned against us, we go and show him our, his fault that we may gain our brother. That's verses 15 to 18 of Matthew chapter 18, which leads into Jesus then teaching the parable as Peter asks how often we are to forgive. But, verse 18 here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I won't spend a lot of time on that phrase here, because it ends up being in our gospel reading as well. Jesus will make it one of the two purposes of the Christian's life today. So we'll talk about that more then. But for now, simply noting that this is a summary of the section around it. All these things have been about how we love our brothers, and we love them because he is Yahweh, right? I am Yahweh, the end of the text. He is our Lord, and he loves them, and so we love them too. And this now brings us to our epistle reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which in this part of year A, we're slowly working our way through this Epistle up until we get to basically the end of the calendar year, the church calendar year, as we'll move into with proper 29, the final reading for the year will be from 1 Corinthians 15, but proper 28 is from 1 Thessalonians 5, proper 24 was from 1 Thessalonians 1, so we get five weeks in a row. In this epistle, which again a couple of them get lost because of Reformation Sunday and All Saints Day readings unless your pastor chooses to stick to the propers for the day instead of the the holiday text. So as a reminder of context here, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 on his second missionary journey plants this church in Thessalonica, which is north of the Aegean Sea in the region known as Macedonia. Philippi is a little bit off to the east. Berea is another city you might recognize the name of nearby, in Macedonia as well. So second missionary journey, uh, late 40s, and then this letter follows it up maybe around 51 AD, Paul writing to a church that he has planted. And this text is going to be about that, that relationship that they have. Start with verses 1 through 8. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So, verse 1, Paul and Silas, are the referent of our, coming to you as they went on their missionary journey. And their coming was not in vain. They planted a church there. Now, Acts 17 doesn't go all that well in some other ways. As they they go, they speak the gospel in the synagogue, and there are some who believe, but not all. And so the Jews, who don't believe, end up chasing them, seeking to to bring harm upon them. They must have been staying in the house of a man named Jason because they go to Jason seeking to get him to hand them over, but he, he refuses Ultimately, uh, harm is done to Jason as well. And the Christians now, Christians, in that community help Paul and Silas get out of town, escape, and they move on to the next city where they keep on preaching of Christ. They planted a church. The coming was not in vain. Yes, there was danger. Yes, there was harm. Yes, things did not go perfectly. And yet they did because there are now Christians there. There are now people who have been rescued from sin, death, and the devil, who get to taste and see that the Lord is good, who get to live forever in paradise. That's definitely not in vain. It's not worthless, useless, or any such thing. Thanks be to God. Paul continues, verse 2, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. So they knew because, well, it's one of the next stops on the journey. They get to hear and also likely care for Paul and Silas after they had been harmed in Philippi. So what happened in Philippi? That's Acts chapter 16, that they went there, also with the gospel, One of the things that happens there is that they find that slave girl who's telling fortunes, and they cast out the demon from her so she can't anymore, which causes some troubles, costs some income to somebody, and they end up getting brought before the leaders. Garments are torn off of them. They're beaten with rods. They're put into prison with their feet in the stocks. And as Paul and Silas are in prison there in Philippi, what do they do? They pray. They sing. And the other prisoners, very specifically mentioned by Luke in the Acts 16 section there, the other prisoners are listening, and thus hearing the word of God also. And then there's the earthquake, and the doors to the cells are opened, and the jailer wakes up, and he sees the doors open, assumes prisoners have escaped, takes his sword, he's about to kill himself with it. Why? Why? Well, the penalty under Roman law for a man entrusted with prisoners to have them escape is his own death. So rather than let his authorities possibly torture him and kill him, he'll just go ahead and end himself swiftly and painlessly. But instead, the Christians call out. Paul calls out that he must not harm himself, for the prisoners are still there. Jailer takes him home. Paul preaches the gospel, Paul baptizes, well, there is a baptism of the jailer's family, his house. So, gospel preached at Philippi, there are some who believe, some who don't, and Paul and Silas journey on on the missionary journey, they come to Thessalonica, and verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So they could have not, right? You could imagine if you were in a situation where you had said something, done something, and you get imprisoned and beaten for it, that you would be less likely to want to do that thing again. But thanks, Peter God, that they did. Thanks be to God that Paul and Silas inspired by the work of the Holy Spirit continue on to the next city and keep preaching the gospel because if they don't, the church in Thessalonica doesn't get planted. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in that church. We will meet them someday in paradise. But Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And so the People receiving this letter at first, almost 2,000 years ago now, those who receive this letter can say the same thing. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that the gospel made it to us, was preached to us. Verse 3, their appeal, so what Paul and Silas preach, their message isn't from error or impurity, or attempts to deceive so it's not a falsehood but they speak what has been entrusted to them by the Lord they speak the gospel they speak the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen that our sins are forgiven and that we have life everlasting and they do this not to please man but to please God who tests their hearts If they were trying to please man, they would have stopped long ago. They would have stopped in Philippi. They would have given in to the pressures and the persecution and the affliction. But they have a father who is in heaven. They have another master. Well, they have one master, Jesus. And it is him and him alone that they seek to serve and to please. And this is a call for us as well. We are not here to serve earthly masters. We are not here to please man. We are here to please the Lord, to serve him in all that we do, to glorify him in all that we do and say and think. Paul also here acknowledges that this God he serves tests hearts. The Lord tests us, that is, he puts us into trials into situations where our faith is put to the test. Why? Because through it, our faith is strengthened. Like fire strengthening metal, as it helps purify the metal. It's an analogy used in scripture a couple of times. When we suffer, it produces endurance, character, and hope. That's Romans 5. When we suffer we trust in Christ we turn to him recognizing that we cannot do this ourselves so testing strengthens faith Paul then acknowledges that they did not come with words of flattery as you know so the Thessalonians heard the gospel and not not in words that were just buttering them up making them feel good about themselves they came speaking truth They also didn't come with a pretext for greed. And here Paul calls God as his witness to this. That is to say, they didn't come there preaching this word in order to get rich. Traveling entertainers may have already existed at the time who would go from town to town with their performances, their plays. It's not what this is. This isn't a money-making scheme. This isn't even... Uh, Something, as Paul will address here in the text as we move forward, they didn't even seek money from these people. They worked hard to provide for themselves during their time there. Verse 6, they didn't seek glory from people. Uh, It might be a reference to Matthew 6, as we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount already where Jesus says we should not be doing our works to be praised by men. The hypocrites do that. They make their prayers long, wordy, so that other people think how great he is. This is not what Christians do. We seek glory only from Christ. Now, Paul does point out here that because they are apostles of Christ, they could have if they wanted to. They could have made specific demands, they could have asked for payment, they could have asked for honor and expected it, but they don't. They take a more humble approach. That's a teaching for us as well, that we would seek to be humble as we live together, serve together, and love one another. Paul uses the analogy of being like a nursing mother caring for her children. So gentle were they with them. Gentle is a reference to caring. Not necessarily softness, although this analogy certainly includes softness, but more of a caring kind of a word. And so being affectionately desirous of you. It's a lot of love language there. Ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. This is the way the Christian church works. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is not just a random phrase that we like to use. It's it's true. You and I may not have ever met, but we are family. And we will spend paradise together. This is good news. Let us love each other. Let us give whatever we can to the other, because you had become very dear to us. A picture, again, of a lot of love in this text. Our next paragraph, verses 9 through 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So again, Paul and Silas, whoever else accompanied them on their journey there, they worked They didn't just come into the town preaching the gospel and and doing nothing else. They actually labored. They helped how they could to provide so that they would not be a burden to this community. There are other texts where Paul will encourage a community to care for the one who brings the gospel, he even uses Old Testament language and you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain kind of a statement. But oftentimes in Paul's own missionary journeys, he did not do so. He did not expect or, or take any income from the people to whom he took the gospel. You are witnesses, and God also. Second time now in the text he's called God as his witness. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. In this, Paul and Silas were setting an example for the church to follow. Holy, that is, set apart, treated in a a different way than the world. The world does not treat us well. The world hates us because it hates Christ but to see that you are distinct from the world around you. That's how they treated them. And then righteous, blameless. We could take all three of these words to mean perfect if we wanted to. Doing what is right. Blameless. Without without blame that you can cast upon them, you can't point out the errors that they were committing. I think oftentimes our life together as Christians can can do some of these things we don't always see the sin among us I'm not saying sin isn't present but oftentimes you know that person that the way they serve at your church the way they do what they do you can't find fault in that that person it's not to say they're not a sinner it's just to recognize that you don't know their sin and they they're they're serving well they're loving their neighbor and so forth For you know how like a father with his children. So we have now both illustrations, mother and father. Mother with her child, father with his child. Mom cares for her child. What does dad do? He exhorts and encourages and charges. He teaches you how to live. He teaches you how to walk. He teaches you the way to go. He coaches you on that path. Encourages you. I love the word encourage, even though it's kind of weak in English. He gives you courage. That's what it means to encourage someone. Give them courage. He emboldens you for the tasks that lie ahead, exhorts, urges, pushes you forward, helps you to know how to go. And so the apostles have done. For this church building them up encouraging them guiding them showing them how christ has called them to live that's the manner worthy of god right the the calling and to keep the word calling because he has called us we are no longer of the world we've been called out of the world we are now part of his kingdom which jesus told pilate is not of this world We are part of his glory. Glory is the thing that is worth looking at somebody for. So God's glory is his creation and his salvation. It is all that he has done, and you're part of it. He created you. He redeemed you. He has given you life. He has called you to be his own. You get to share in his glory as these Thessalonian Christians would without a doubt be thanking the Lord for Paul and Silas. They're sharing in his glory. All right, verse 13 in the text of Scripture would start a new paragraph for us, but we just have verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers." So Paul, Silas, thank God for this church again and again constantly. Why? Well, that they are the church. That they didn't just think of Paul and Silas as messengers who brought a strange message, but instead messengers who brought the very word of God. It's not man's word. It's God's word. And it creates. The word of God creates. It makes in our hearts. It makes faith. And so it has here in the city of Thessalonica. Lastly now we come to our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 22 verses 34 to 46 as we are coming and near to the point where Christ will be arrested at the end of Holy Week. But for now, he's being tested by the various religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees have tested him with that question on whether or not they should be paying taxes to Caesar, to which he stupefies them with his answer. And then it's the Sadducees who take a stab at it, so another group of leaders at the time, challenging him basically on ideas they don't even believe in. The Sadducees did not believe there would be a resurrection, and yet they ask a question about the resurrection. Why? Well, they ask it in order to show that Christ's teachings are foolishness. That was their goal. So, whoever marriage is an Old Testament marriage law, Uh, the idea that if a man dies, a man who's married dies without having had a son, how does his part of the promised land, how does his lot get passed down and not lost? Well, it ends up being that his brother takes his wife into his own home as his wife now, but if he has a child, a son by her, that son is counted to the first brother, the brother whose wife she originally was. That way his inheritance again can be passed down and his family name kept, so they come up with this story of a man who has a wife, he dies, no children, so his brother takes her in. Uh, he also then dies without having had a child with her. There were seven of these brothers, and it goes through. she goes through all seven of them, and ultimately finally she dies also. And they ask in the resurrection whose wife will she be, since they all had her as wife. So they don't believe in the resurrection at all, and they're seeking to show that Jesus' teaching of a resurrection is foolishness because it would nullify the law. Right, The resurrection cannot fit with this Old Testament law. It's, it just doesn't go together, was their point. And Jesus' response to them, Really with an answer that is still confusing to the church today, that we will neither be married nor given in marriage, but we'll be like the angels. Not that we become angels, but we're unmarried like angels. Or we don't marry as the angels don't marry. Anyway, he has stumped them also. So the Pharisees, that's where our text picks up, they're going to take another stab at him. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the Pharisees, again recognizing that Jesus just embarrassed their enemies, decide they can take him down. So one of them poses another question. To test him. They're still trying to trap Jesus somehow. I've, I've often heard this one described as the idea that there's disagreement amongst the Pharisees and Sadducees about which is the greatest commandment. This is more of a legitimate question than the others. But it doesn't hold true because he's asking this to test Jesus. He's not looking for a genuine answer, just like the other questions already asked. He's looking to trap him. Just, again, the the question about taxes that the Pharisees had asked just before there's no legitimate answer that they want. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They don't believe Jesus is God. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They just know that they've put him in a sticky spot. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, there's Roman soldiers around. Rome's going to take this guy out. They'll put him in prison for starting an insurrection. But if he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to lose the favor of the people because the people are thinking he's the Messiah. And thus, their belief that the Messiah would be a liberating military champion who would come and overthrow Rome, why should we pay taxes to Rome if you're going to liberate us from it? It doesn't make sense. They thought they had him. And again, this question now is asked to test him as though they are seeking with whatever answer Jesus gives to somehow prove that he is not who the crowds think he is, to dethrone him. Maybe he will give an answer that will show he doesn't know Scripture. How does he answer? Twofold. You shall love your... God the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind this is the great and first commandment Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 and then he gives a second you shall love your neighbor as yourself there he quotes from our Old Testament reading Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 and this is one of those things sometimes I feel like Jesus cheats a little bit here which is the greatest commandment what's he do he, com- he summarizes all of them His response is the summary of the Ten Commandments, as we talk today about the commandments being divisible into two tables, the two tables of the law. Commandments 1 through 3, shall have no other gods, not misuse the name of the Lord your God, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Those are all about our love of God. And then 4 through 10, from honoring your parents through coveting, all of that's about loving your neighbor. The second table of the law. Jesus says all of it. It's not really cheating because he's God. He can do as he pleases. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That was their phrase for the Old Testament. You could call it scripture. You could call it the law and the prophets. Sometimes it's the law, prophets, and writings but Law and Prophets is probably the most common way you'll see it described in the New Testament. So the whole Old Testament is built on these two things. In a way, and I said this in the Old Testament portion, this is Jesus giving our life its purpose. What are you here for? Love God, love your neighbor. We love the Lord as we seek to be saved ourselves, and we love our neighbor so that Again, seeking that our neighbor would be saved. We loved them so that they would hear the gospel from us. The purpose of life is the salvation that we get from Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Now, Jesus returns the favor. Let's keep reading the text. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So not letting them depart, he's still got them all together. They just tried to trap him. He throws a question at them that they can't answer. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Christ in Greek, Christos, is the Greek word for an anointed one. And they anointed their prophets, their priests, and their kings in the Old Testament. The Old Testament Hebrew word for the anointed one is Mashiach, Messiah. So Messiah, Christ, same word, two different languages. So Jesus asks them, "Who? what do they think about the Messiah? To use a word that's probably more familiar. Anyway, they recognize what the Old Testament teaches, that the Messiah will come from the house of David. You can go to 2 Samuel 7, for example, to see that promise that God makes that one of his descendants will sit on his throne in Jerusalem forever. This is what they're looking for, the Savior to come from the line of David. So Jesus then takes them into the Psalms. Psalm 110, verse 1. How is it then that David, in the Spirit, so inspired by the Holy Spirit to write part of God's word, calls him Lord. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David's king of Israel. What Lord? God is in charge of him. That's the first one the Lord said. That's God. To my Lord. Here's the puzzle of the text for the Pharisees that they can't understand. How is it that David would call someone who comes from his own body his Lord? His own son? Or 14 generations later, great, 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 lots of greats, grandson. Yet Jesus is his Lord, and this is something that as Christians we recognize with ease today, that Jesus is King, he's the Lord of all, but it shows a bit of a false expectation in the Pharisaical trust, the hope of the Jew that, that day, that the Messiah would just be a man. David recognized that the Messiah would be something more, Uh, That could be a point Jesus is attempting to make here, but they don't get it. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, by the way, or we would take as a reference to the ascension and the last day. 1 Corinthians 15, helpful there. Sit at my right hand. Jesus ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven as we confess in the creed together as his people. Until... I put your enemies under your feet until the Lord God the Father subjects all things under Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 15 again. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. That's not any question literally. Literally. As in, they never asked him, where should we go? What's next? They ask him that kind of stuff all the time. But rather, these tests, these traps, these attempts to undo his ministry. There are no further attempts. They've realized that every time they ask, Jesus just turns it around on them. They were seeking to make him look like a fool, but he's able to make them look like fools who don't know the word of God. So we thank the Lord. We thank God for his gift of salvation in Christ. We thank him that the good news, as it was preached also in Thessalonica, has been preached among us. That the word of God is at work in us as believers, and we pray that the Lord would help us to love him and to love our neighbors.